Welcome to season two of Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is season two, episode one Choosing a Fellowship in Otolaryngology, the Pediatric Otolaryngology Edition. My guest today is Owen Dar, who is a pediatric otolaryngologist at the Children's Hospital of Colorado. Owen did medical school at the University of Michigan and then stayed in Michigan for residency. He then came to the University of Colorado to complete a one-year pediatric otolaryngology fellowship. We were lucky enough to keep him on his faculty this summer. In addition to general pediatric otolaryngology, Owen is also interested in vascular malformations, trauma, ultrasounds and neck masses, and otology. He enjoys spending time outdoors with his wife and his young son, hiking and snowboarding. Thanks for being on the show, Owen. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. Let's go back to the beginning and tell me about how did you decide to do otolaryngology as a specialty? Well, going way, way back, I you know wanted to be a doctor since basically high school and just being kind of a math and science interested kid. And I always was probably drawn a little bit initially to pediatrics just because I liked kids and um, thought that would be a good fit. And then as I started kind of thinking about things I was good at and like tinkering with things and working with my hands, uh, surgery was very appealing. Then, so in, in medical school, when it, you know everyone's talking about what they want to do, I always planned like I was going to do something surgical. It wasn't really until between second and third year, early third year, where I started to think about surgical subspecialties and where I might, where that might be a good fit. And the one that stuck out to me just from interest in the cranial nerves and the anatomy, I, I really thought ENT was really interesting just from an anatomic side and, and, and all these different systems and how they interplay and the, the complexities involved. So I, I sought out some shadowing opportunities and I was, I was really impressed with the connections I made with various mentors, most of them being on the head and neck surgery and cancer side of things. And so I, with that interest kind of developing, I decided to take a year off in the middle of med school and do some research in a head neck cancer lab and also, you know, spend some time in the clinic and, and ORs kind of shadowing and just getting more and more exposed. And, and everything was very reinforcing of that decision. Um, I felt really drawn to the, the specialty. And I, you know, I was initially drawn to the big complex adult cancer surgeries and that treatment, but I was fully self-aware of the fact that I'd probably changed my mind a few times before finally deciding on a career. And I like that ENT had a lot of different little niches within it, at least most of which I found really interesting, whether it was, you know, sinus or ears, otology, facial plastics, laryngology, and of course, pediatrics. Yeah. And then how did you decide to do a pediatric otolaryngology fellowship specifically? So uh, I matched in uh, into otolaryngology. I did residency at uh, the same place I did medical school, University of Michigan. I was in a fortunate position where they had a lot of really well-rounded program and a lot of different quality subspecialty experiences. And it was a couple of years in when I did my pediatric rotation. I think I was in the middle of my second year. And you know, at that point, very, still trying to keep an open mind and, and what I wanted to do long term. And I really, you know, found myself just enjoying the the day to day. And, you know, we do a lot of like bread and butter stuff in pediatric ENT, you know, tonsillectomy and hearing issues in young kids, doing ear tubes, but then, you know, a, a smattering of more complex things. And I think I got a taste of all of that as a junior resident and, and just enjoyed 
in general, being in a children's hospital, taking care of children. And I think what really reinforced it for me was when I finished the pediatric rotation and I had to go back over to the adult hospital and, and do kind of more general ENT rotations. And I immediately missed being in the children's hospital and just the general feel that I had over there and the patient care and just the atmosphere. And so that was, I kind of clued into that. That was an important realization. And, you know, I went about the rest of my second year and, and third year with that in the back of my mind. And as I went through third year and I did rotation in sinus and laryngology and, and all these kind of subspecialties in the adult side, I think it solidified for me or crystallized for me that I didn't want to give up any of those. I didn't want to pick a single subspecialty at the expense of never treating any sinus problems again or never looking in at any ears again or doing any ear surgery. So I, I like the well-rounded nature. And, and then so I, I kind of found myself looking back at the pediatric subspecialty and how that could offer you know, not only the patient population that I really felt passionate about caring for, but also you know a well-rounded clinical experience where I could still take care of multiple different systems in the head and neck at a, at a complex level. And I thought it would be a very rewarding career. Yeah, because pediatric otolaryngology, unlike some of the other subspecialties, like you alluded to, you really can do most of the breadth of otolaryngology just in the pediatric population. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the, there's the occasional thing in, in pediatric ENT that we fit something we, we just so rarely see or is a really high complex level that we'll call the adult subspecialists who maybe take care of many skull-based tumors a year and we only see one or two. And so we might ask for some assistance or coordination of care to just provide the best care for a patient. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the timeline. You decided you wanted to do this. You really cemented your decision, sounds like third year. And then when did you apply and how did that work? Sure. So yeah, most people in a five-year residency program should have you know a good sense of what they want to do by the end of third year. And then at the beginning of fourth year, it would be good to start getting letters of recommendations. So you have those um, going into the application cycle and kind of ready to go. So uh, letters of recommendation early fourth year. And then for pediatric ENT, the application cycle, most applications are due right around the new year or January. So the earliest application deadline I had was the new year in the middle of fourth year. And so I had my application pretty much mostly done by Thanksgiving and I could have my you know letter writers you know take a look at a few things in December before the holidays and everything was pretty much ready to go by the holidays. Programs have opportunity to review everything and then get back to probably throughout the month of February. It's kind of a rolling basis. I think I spent most of March doing interviews. And I went on about seven or eight interviews and I think eight interviews. And I think the last one I had was early April. And then we matched in the middle of May. So it was about a one month turnaround from like submitting your rank list to match day in the middle of May. Yeah. And then you get a year to yeah, know, and then get everything else together, right? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was nice to know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and then how many programs would you say there are total? There are, and it's been increasing every year, so it's a little hard to keep track. When I was applying, there were, I think, around 30, 35, and of those, 20 to 25 are ACGME accredited, but the latest number I heard was, was I think, closer to 45 fellowships, so they're popping up all over, and the number of fellowships now definitely outnumber the number of applicants. Yeah, so last year I heard that there were D spots, uh, there weren't enough applicants to fill every position. So 
is that reflective of how competitive the pediatric fellowship match is? Yeah, I think we'll continue to see that trend for some time as the just because programs are developing their pediatric otolaryngology divisions and with that see a role for a fellow and the case numbers that will support a fellow. And so just more fellowship spots are being approved by ACGME, but the number of residents seeking out those spots is is staying kind of stable. So we're seeing just kind of more open spots. So I guess that's a that's a good thing for applicants. It's a little bit of a buyer's a buyer's market. I think people that, you know, residents that want to do pediatric ENT will have a really good chance of you know, finding a fellowship and matching into a fellowship. But there are those elite historical pediatric ENT fellowships. You know, there's Boston, Cincinnati, CHOP, kind of on the East Coast. And then out West, I would say Seattle and Colorado are the two programs that I really think highly of. And those are, I think, always going to be competitive. And so they're going to be the same kind of high-level applicants applying for those those spots. But then there's a there are a lot of really quality programs around the country and, and becoming more and more so. So residents have a good opportunity right now to, to get good training in this field. And so how do you match into those historically best programs? What do you think in the fellowship application helps you to get in? Yeah, well, I think it really helps to, to have at least some sense of, you know, wanting to do pediatric ENT or at least wanting to do fellowship early on in residency because that'll be a motivating factor in, in seeking out some research opportunities, maybe during second or third year, so that they can be on your uh, application by the time applications roll around in fourth year. Obviously, lines on your CV are important. Research experience and, and publications are always important. They do look at, look at board scores still. And beyond that, I think the letters of recommendation are probably the most important thing that set candidates apart at least prior to, you know, coming for an interview. So I think those three things together in combination. So knowing a little bit what you want to do and seeking out research projects and then letting mentors know on the pediatric side that you're interested so that they can get to know you and you can get to know them and they can hopefully write strong letters and help guide you uh, through the process. Yeah, absolutely. I've said this before on previous podcasts, but it really matters a lot more who you know and who's writing your letters Mm -hmm. when you're a when you're a fellow applicant versus a residency applicant. Yeah. So tell me about your fellowship. So you did it at University mm-hmm. of Colorado, like we talked about. What did you learn? What did you enjoy the most about it? Well, I chose this program. This program really stood out to me because it was so well-rounded. I think like Cincinnati, for example, has such an intensive airway experience that I think you really have to be committed to um, developing a career around that um, if you want to go there. Although, you know, they have excellent training in, in all the little subspecialties of pediatrics, but you have to be committed to, I think, having a really airway heavy fellowship experience. For me, I wanted a really well-rounded and diverse fellowship experience. And I was really also drawn to getting a cleft lip and palate training, which there are only a few programs in the country that offer. So here at Colorado, We split cleft lip and palate 50-50 with plastic surgery. So we get to take care of those patients in that way with experienced ENT surgeons who have been doing it for years. The other things that drew me were having a strong program in otology years, doing cochlear implantation independently of the otology division. So we do those in-house, although there are some adult otologists who also come over and could work with as a fellow to hone those otologic skills. I liked that this was a 
a freestanding hospital that kept most things in-house, but also had the resources across the street at the university uh, adult hospital to call upon it if we needed it. So those are kind of why I chose. And I think all of that was pretty much reinforced during my fellowship experience. The experience in general, um, well, it's nice being out of residency. Um, yeah. you're, a little bit, you're a little bit above the weeds. You know, you're a little bit of a managerial role. We work with a couple of residents who have always been excellent. And we can, you know, kind of oversee patient care a little bit more and, and try to give the residents some autonomy, but also hone our clinical intuition and knowledge and develop that throughout the year while teaching residents how to you know, manage certain situations. So I guess the other thing to kind of mention about my, or at least our fellowship was it was very operative heavy, which I loved. Um, I was in a OR, I think probably four, four out of five days a week, at least. And there was just a high volume of complex cases to, to really sink our teeth into and really interesting patients and, and families to get to know. And, and some of them you see, you know, multiple times for different reasons and, or take care of throughout a maybe a long hospital course or, or neonatal course. I think it was really intensive in terms of immersing ourselves in the patient care for that year and really knowing a lot about innumerable patients, getting to know a lot of you know patients and families. And so I really enjoyed when diving in and being kind of immersed in, in that care and learning a lot from some really great mentors here. Yeah. I mean, you get a little bit more autonomy as well when you mm-hmm. are a fellow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that, you know, that I really enjoyed the trust that was given to us. I mean, you know, you have to kind of prove yourself and your your knowledge base early on to gain that trust. But when once you have it or if you get it, it really goes a long way. And our mentors especially were particularly trusting to for us to help take care of their patients. And, and that was a really great and rewarding experience. Yeah. So when did you start looking for jobs? Pretty much right away in fellowship. I think I had my first kind of job phone call six weeks, maybe eight weeks into fellowship. I think by the early, early August, I had something set up to go somewhere, have an interview in, in early October. But the rest of the opportunities were lagged a little bit behind that. Well, I was looking at a few different areas in the country and my wife's a physician too. She's a pediatrician. So we had that. We had to find a place that was going to be good for both of our careers. So we, you know, we had some target areas. They do post some, they post the jobs on both the Academy website and the ASPO website. And you can reach out through there. or You can reach out sometimes through a colleague or, or mentor if you want to have them make a phone call for you. So I, I think I did things kind of both ways. And some of them we're maybe limited to a phone call. And I think that's a good way to kind of feel out if you're going to be a good fit, if you're offering, you know, the same thing that they're looking for. And then I went on three interviews and I ended up canceling one after taking a job somewhere prior to that interview. And then I think in in addition to that, I had about three phone interviews. So maybe seven, seven places I was looking at kind of somewhere between September and December, and then I took a job at the end of January. So it sounds like the job market is still open. It's not a really hard specialty to get a job in. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it definitely always depends on what you're looking for. I think my year I was particularly good in terms of numbers of like academic jobs. You know, I had a colleague or friend that was also looking at private practice jobs at the same time, and he had quite a few opportunities and, and offers to choose from. Whereas I think academic places are a little bit more selective or maybe have 
more people to choose from or as private places might only have a couple people that are interested in doing, you know, private practice in that maybe geographic area. But in general, yes, uh, you can find a job. And I think a lot of the, you know, private children's hospitals around the country are looking to expand pediatric ENT at their hospital. So there are a lot of things kind of popping up. So do you feel like most pediatric fellowship trained otolaryngologists do academic careers or is there a good percentage that do private practice as well? I think there's a good percentage that do private practice. I think it's probably, and I don't know the numbers, but they're probably not too different. I think if they're not 50-50, I think then maybe a few more go into academic than private, but I'd still say a lot go into private. And when I say private, I guess I don't mean like in office with a surgical center, although some people probably do go into places like that. But I mean, like there are, you know, there are a lot of private children's hospitals around the country that maybe aren't affiliated with an academic or, or maybe they're loosely affiliated with a medical school, but they're otherwise financially independent. When I say private, I, I'm also referring to places like that. Yeah, because you have to have some level of tertiary care to really yeah. require a pediatric otolaryngologist. Yeah, exactly. Having a pediatric ICU or neonatal ICU and right. um, and all things that go along with that. Yeah. So you mentioned your wife's also a physician. So was she mm-hmm. able to find a job also? How did that yeah. work? And that was, that was definitely a big part of our, our job search together was trying to find something that fit for both of us. We were in Michigan for a long time for you know med- medical school and residency, and we both grew up there. And she had an academic job as a primary care pediatrician in, in Michigan for a couple of years before we moved out here. And so ideally, she was you know looking for something that was somewhat academic, but still primary care clinical job. And it was surprising when we looked in some places that uh, don't really offer the same landscape medically. A lot of academic networks, Colorado included, uh, on the pediatric side, the, the academics sort of stick to the more subspecialty realm and leave the primary care mostly to the private practices in the area. And so it was just a little kind of eye-opening seeing that the different landscapes in different metropolitan areas. And that's, that's what we ended up doing. She found a, a good private practice. It dips its toes in the academics a little bit, does bring on some medical students and residents occasionally. So she has that opportunity in her practice, which I think is is good for her, and she can still continue some of her academic pursuits and advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. So the Board of Medical Examiners is probably going to start a pediatric otolaryngology subspecialty board certification Mm -hmm. in the near future. Tell me what you know about that. So I know of it. I know that it's probably happening and it may happen, you know, in the next two, three, four years. It might take a few more years than expected, but I think it could happen as early as two or three years from now and would involve, you know, an additional written exam and potentially an oral component. I don't know all the details, so I don't, hopefully I'm not uh, putting any false information out there. I'll keep it kind of vague because I don't know things for sure and I'm not sure any of this is written in stone anyways yet. But yeah, it's happening. And I think there are pros and cons to it. Obviously, as someone who just finished training and took took their board exams last year, you know, it's just another exam that we'll study for and take and pass. And this is medicine. You sort of have a never ending commitment of lifelong learning, right? right. So we'll continue to to do some of this stuff. But I think it'll be good for probably patients overall. And in terms of, as I mentioned a lot, you know, more hospitals are expanding pediatric ENT. And I think it's good to have some quality control kind of central accreditation network that makes sure that as those practices expand that 
they're credited to do so and that the, the physicians that are expanding their practice to that population are qualified and can take you know good quality care of patients. Yeah, I think that there's a big difference between a generalist doing tubes, tonsils, that kind of thing, versus right. like airway reconstruction and cochlear implantation. You need a lot more of a setup for that. So hopefully that's what the intent of the board certification is. Right. Yeah. And to my understanding, you know, that's taking care of kids and is, is part of general ENT. And so I think they want to preserve that, but I'm not sure sort of where those lines will be drawn. Yeah. So if you had to do it again, would you choose the same fellowship? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I'm very happy with my career choice. I, you know, get a lot of fulfillment out of just seeing, you know, patients every day, thinking through new and different problems. You know, you read a lot of, well, you read a lot, you know, in medical school and, and residency and they're all the, you know, the classic cases, but it turns out there aren't any real classic patients. Everyone's, there's always some little twist and turn that you've got to navigate and it's a great career to keep you on your toes and I think keep you interested and fulfilled. I enjoy the bread and butter of pediatric ENT. I think it's definitely not for everybody, but I enjoy having kind of a, the general pediatric side dealing with pediatric sleep and tonsillar issues and also the you know ear infections and, and who needs ear tubes. But then, you know, we, you know, we work in a tertiary care children's hospital and tons of complex, interesting patients are also coming in with problems to sort through and some that need surgery and some don't. And I enjoy helping you know families navigate that process. And I've been fortunate to find a good job with supportive colleagues. And, you know, I work with my fellowship mentors, but they've all been really welcoming to me. And, and it's been nice that they kind of know some of my strengths and have helped me kind of develop a practice in a few different areas. So you have a two-year-old son. Mm-hmm. If he comes to you in 25, 30 years, because <laughs> uh, it's going to take that long, yeah, he sure. says, dad, I want to be an oligarchologist or dad, I want to be a pediatric oligarchologist. What are you going to tell him? I would say that's awesome. You know, hopefully I'm not too jaded by then, but I, I, you know, like I said, I really like what I do. And I think if he is anything like me and, you know, likes problem solving and talking to people and, and meeting families and helping them kind of navigate through simple or complex issues with their children, if he has that sort of personality to be successful there, then I'd, I'd fully encourage him. But hopefully I'm also honest with him. If, if it plays to his strengths, then I would fully encourage him to do so. If, if it doesn't, you know, maybe he's more of a, a medicine-minded person or he doesn't have the best hands, <laughs> maybe I'll steer him towards uh, some other strengths. But no, this is, a really, this is a really great field and I think really good time to be in ENT and pediatric ENT. There's always emerging, you know, technology that's, that's interesting, you know, cochlear implantation over the past 20 years has been really amazing. And the outcomes we're able to provide for patients, sinus surgery and the image navigation is, is really interesting and always kind of changing. I work with the oncology team over here and they're always developing new therapies. And I even was in a presentation today with some pediatric surgeons that are trialing some new fluorescent visualization of tumors. And I'm curious if that might could maybe be implemented in ENT at all in the future. So yeah, there, there's always new stuff. And I think going back to the question, if, if my little guy's into that stuff, then I'd fully wholeheartedly support that. Great. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so. Hopefully I haven't been too long-winded. No, no. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Until next time, wishing you success and joy. Thank <laughs> you.